0: Uh, Welcome again this morning to Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Again, my name is John Fountain. I'm one of the uh, pastoral interns here. Our senior pastor, Hal, uh, is away right now celebrating the 25th anniversary of uh, RUF, Reformed University Fellowship at Vanderbilt. If you don't know anything about this, it's our ministry to uh, college students. Started out on a handful of campuses, now it's all over the country Uh, I really think it's just one of the uh, most amazing things that God is doing through the PCA, our denomination. And Redeemer and PCA, the RUF, I'm sorry, have a lot in common, uh, namely our philosophy of ministry. The way we think about things and the way we do things is very similar. And one of the things that we believe very strongly is that God is at work. Uh, He's at work here this morning. He's at work all over the world. And we also believe in reaching and equipping. We want to go out into the world and reach people with the gospel, and then we want to equip them to serve. And so that's why I'm standing up here in front of you this morning, because of our our philosophy of ministry. Uh, This is an opportunity for me, someone who's getting ready to go to seminary, to exercise uh, some of the gifts that I may or may not have. Um, I'll let you be determinant of that later on. But we've been looking at the book of Psalms uh, for the past number of weeks, and the Psalms can be broken down a number of different ways. Uh, Some would say there are three or maybe five different categories of Psalms. There are Psalms of praise, there are imprecatory Psalms, uh, there are messianic Psalms, there are occasional Psalms that were written for specific purposes, and there are Psalms of wisdom. The Psalm we're going to look at this morning, Psalm 19, uh, it's kind of hard to say which kind of psalm this is. There's lots of wisdom in it. Uh, there's great praise in it. There are, I think, allusions to our Messiah, Jesus, in it. Uh, but any way you shake it up, it's, it's beautiful. In fact, C.S. Lewis said of this psalm, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Uh, So join with me as I read this. It's printed for you in your bulletin or if you have a Bible or electronic device with you. Um, Psalm 19, to the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That's God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, your goodness. Thank you for the opportunity to be here together with your people, to call out to you, to worship you, to know that you hear us to know that we can come so boldly before your throne of grace because of the work that Jesus Christ has done on behalf of sinners. That he came and he offered himself as a sacrifice for our transgressions, and he offered us his righteousness as a free gift. And so, Father, as we are gathered here this morning, as your people are gathered all over this world, I pray that you would be with us, that you would be at work, that you would open ears, and hearts to hear truth, that you would teach people about yourself, and that you would bring people to know yourself. Lord, these people here this morning, they don't need to hear from me. I have nothing to offer them uh, except you, and so I pray that you would work mightily through uh, this time, and your scriptures, and the teaching of it, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh I used to work with the youth ministry here. I was the youth director last year. Uh, Just a really incredible opportunity for me. Um, And one of the great privileges that I had was getting to escort a number of high school students down to Laguna Beach last summer for the PCA's yearly uh, youth retreat. Uh, Rob Heron, our current youth director, uh, escorted us as well. Morgan Cogswell, if you don't know them, you should get to know them. And we had just an incredible time down at Laguna Beach. We spent a lot of time on the beach. We played volleyball. We dominated the soccer tournament, something no one expected, least of all ourselves. We spent a lot of time, for some reason, at Walmart looking at uh, strange cat shirts. I don't know, kids these days. Uh, And most importantly, we spent a lot of time hearing just great Bible teaching uh, from a lot of really gifted pastors And one of the talks that particularly struck me was from a a pastor from Alabama, a guy named Kurt Cooper, who Rob and I have uh, a healthy man crush on, It's pretty awesome. And this talk that he gave was entitled Digital Christianity, and the thrust of these series of talks uh, was how should Christians respond to this digital age that we live in, how should we think about the technology that is so pervasive in our culture? And this is an important question to ask for many of reasons. And one of the aspects about this that I thought was so interesting was that our new technology is really affecting human interactions, human communication uh, in some very interesting ways. The way we interact with one another is different now because of our technology. Probably none of you have ever written a letter to someone. If You're under 25 maybe. You've never written a paper letter. We send emails to each other. We contact each other on Facebook. We send instant messages, text messages, Twitter messages, yin-yang messages, yik-yang, I don't know, all kinds of stuff, right? In fact, when I was writing the sermon on Friday, I was getting up-to-the-minute uh, Twitter updates on the Todd Gurley situation. It was pretty, pretty interesting, right? Almost couldn't concentrate, which is another problem with technology. But anytime something happens anywhere in the world, you can know about it like that. And you can have conversations with people that you've never met, that you've never seen, that you don't know. And one of the basic concepts of communication theory is that in order for communication on any level to take place, there has to be a sender of this communication, there has to be a medium for the communication, and a receiver. Each of these three things are required for communication. And one of the books that uh, the esteemed Kurt Cooper inspired me to read about this Uh, made this argument that this new medium of electronic communication is actually changing on a much more fundamental level who we are as people. It changes the way our brains work. And the author makes this argument that, well, he goes on to unpack the sort of history of communication, and he looks at written texts as a medium. And what scientists are finding is that when we learn things from written text, reading paper books, Uh, There are certain kinds of patterns, uh, synaptical connections in our brains that are formed. that are very conducive for deep thinking, for critical thinking, for concentration, for analyzing, and for reasoning. Uh, You can see this in the period of time right after the invention of the printing press. All of a sudden, people all over the world have access to written texts, and as a direct result of that, uh, there are all manner of ideological intellectual revolutions that take place all over the world. Now, conversely, if we look at the way electronic communication affects human brainwaves, it forms very different patterns in our brain, patterns that are actually uh, prohibit the other kinds of patterns from happening. And so it creates much shallower thinking. The name of one of these books, The Shallows, Uh, it creates incoherent thought patterns. They're scattered and they're jumpy. So why do I say all that? Um... Well, there's an important principle here that different mediums, different means of communication produce different results, even if that's not the intention. And that's exactly what we see in our text this morning, but on a much more significant scale because we're looking at the mediums through which God communicates to us. The God of the universe is a God who has revealed himself, and that self-revelation evokes a response from those who are the recipients of the revelation. And God has revealed himself to us through different mediums, and those different mediums produce different results. And so I'd like us to consider this morning that the creator God of the universe, who has revealed himself to mankind through his creation, this is one of his means, has also revealed himself to us through his word as a covenant Lord. So we're going to look at these two different mediums of God's communication. First, we'll see that, again, God has revealed himself in his creation to be the creator so that all humankind might have a knowledge of him. And second, we'll see that God has revealed himself in his word, not only as a creator, but also as the covenant Lord of his people. And after we look at these two mediums of God's communication, we'll take a few minutes and consider uh, what, what does this mean for us? How ought we to respond to God's self-revelation. So let's look, first of all, at how God reveals himself to us in his creation. In verse 1 and 2, David writes, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Human beings have always been uh, fascinated with the world they live in. Uh, They've been compelled to wonder, amazement, even fear at times, as he considers his surroundings, especially the vast expanse of the heavens above him. And I think each of us at one time or another has gazed up into these heavens, the night sky, to the seemingly immeasurable expanse of stars without number, each of those stars representing distant galaxies with planets of their own. Or perhaps, maybe as children, hopefully not as adults, you've gazed into the sun, foolishly, um, and you've experienced the pain of its overwhelming intensity, its light and its heat. And so I think it's impossible for us to behold these everyday aspects of our life without a certain sense of reverence and veneration if we think about them with any depth of thought. Uh, And I think it's not difficult for us to understand, even in our modern context, why that many ancient peoples actually worshipped the heavenly bodies, because they're so captivating, uh, and they're utterly magnificent to behold. Additionally, I think it's safe to say, whether you've actually thought about this or not, that we find a great sense of comfort and stability in the regular rhythms of day and night, in which we behold the stars and the sun. So before the pervasive use of electricity in human society, human life revolved around the rising and the setting of the sun. The predictable and seemingly rational patterns of the seasons were a crucial factor in developing sustainable agriculture necessary for the flourishing of human life. And so although our modern technological societies are much less dependent upon these cycles, they are still largely determinant of human behavior. And so we take these rhythms and these cycles, these patterns for granted. We assume that they will always continue because in our experience they always have. We have no reason to think otherwise. So we see that humans are fascinated with all these different aspects of our world. Great philosophers from Aristotle to Hegel have written extensively on the reason, the rationality, the intelligence that they thought they saw in nature. Uh, Numerous scientific fields have arisen Uh, to try to understand these things, to try to unlock the mysteries of this world that we live in. And indeed, the past few centuries uh, have really been marked with great exploration and deeper understanding of this world. And as we've grown to understand it more, I think we've seen increasing uh, beauty and complexity and structure and power. And yet David writes in our text this morning that the phenomena of this world, as fascinating and brilliant as they are, actually point to something far greater, far more glorious than themselves, For they declare that they are the workmanship of a glorious creator, the God of the universe. And the Hebrew word that David uses here for glory, the things that they declare, kavod, uh, many of you know has connotations of weightiness. Uh, But in ancient Jewish culture, this worth word also carried connotations of worth and value. And so an individual's personal worth might be esteemed in some way by the weight of his possessions, the things that he made or owned or had done or had authority over, the net sum value of a person. And so David here indicates that as the handiwork of God, the boundless And apparently, ever increasing expanses of the heavens, with their intricate design, their artistry, their aesthetics, their structure, proclaim the immeasurable glory, not of themselves, but of the God who has dominion over them. And this proclamation of the glory and work of the Creator, David says, is universal. It is for all people in all places, in all times. We see in verse 1 and 2, the verb forms that David uses are actually participles in English. They indicate that this proclamation is continual. It began at the dawn of creation and will continue on into some unimaginable future. The heavens are, in fact, he says, continually and perpetually declaring the glories of God. The sky is continually and perpetually proclaiming that they are the work of an infinitely powerful God. Their metaphoric words, he says in verse 4 and 6, are heard by all. Their voice extends to the farthest reaches of the world. They are not restricted by geography, political boundaries. They're not constrained by the limits of different human languages. And in the same way that the sun bathes the entire world in its light and warmth, so too the proclamation of God's glory and his nature and his power extend to all who live in his world. And moreover, David says, God is pleased and delighted to reveal himself in this way. David compares this declaration and the joy of it to a newly married couple who, as one commentator writes, the desire of their hearts is satisfied. They stand, as it were, at the beginning of a new life, and their youthful countenance, the joy of the wedding day, still shines. Or he says it is like the joy of a warrior athlete marching forward in triumph to this anticipation of a victory that he knows he's coming. Think about Todd Gurley's 100-yard kickoff return against Clemson. And so we see from this text that the created world around us is a communication. It's a medium of God's revelation to us, and there are any number of things we can learn about God from it. Now, one of the inescapable conclusions of this communication Is that if everything we observe around us, even the glorious heavens, are created, then we too are created. We are creatures. And if everything around us exists to proclaim with praise the excellencies of their creator, then we too are created for just that purpose. But there is a problem, if we can speak that way, with this communication only the problem is not with the sender; it's not with the medium, but it's with us, the receivers. And so we have, as your sermon title and pop culture reference suggests, a failure to communicate. The Apostle Paul tells us that although God plainly reveals himself to us as our creator, we willfully reject this revelation. He says that although mankind has clearly perceived this truth, We refuse to honor God or give thanks to him and we suppress this truth in unrighteousness. Why would we do this? I think the reasoning goes something like this. If there is a creator who gives life and breath to all men and I'm his creation, then there is some sense in which I am accountable to my creator for my life and the things that he has given me. And we as fallen human beings naturally reject the sense of accountability. A few weeks ago, Hal preached on Psalm 14 in which David said, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The word here David uses for God means the God of justice. The God who will judge sin and call men to account for their lives. This is the God that we foolishly reject. This is the God we deny. Not God in some generic idea an ideal sense, and you'll notice the atheists never argue against the idea of God, they argue against the God of the Bible, the God who is creator and has dominion over you. We reject this God quite simply because I think we just want to do what we want to do. And if you think about it on some level, isn't that what you want out of your life? You just want to do what you want to do and you don't want anyone to interfere with that? You just want what you want. Uh, You may remember a number of years ago, uh, the famous director Woody Allen left his partner for her uh, much younger adopted daughter, and everybody said, hey, that's not quite right. And you remember how we responded to that when he was questioned? He said, the heart wants what the heart wants. Now, maybe and hopefully none of us here today are Woody Allen, uh, but your heart still wants what your heart wants, doesn't it? It wants to do with his money what it wants to do. It wants to do with your Saturday nights what you want to do, or Saturday afternoons. It wants to do with the internet what it wants to do with the internet. It wants to get from people and relationships what it wants to get. And it doesn't want God or anyone else telling it that some of those things at best are not helpful and at worst are downright evil. Our hearts want what they want, but they are deceitful. They are foolish, and apart from God's grace, they want anything but to submit to their creators. And so we see in this first media of communication that God reveals himself plainly to us, so that even though we repress that truth, we are without excuse. And so when God calls us, when our creator calls us to give an account for the lives that he has given us, there will be no one who can say, I didn't know. And this would be the state of mankind, consigned to live in willful ignorance and rebellion, each doing what was right in our own eyes, if God had left us to our own designs. But He is not. God is rich in mercy and love, and He has given us another communication, another revelation in Himself that declares Him not just to be our Creator, but also our covenant Lord, a Lord who is calling a people to Himself. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we'll see that beginning in verse 7. David writes The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are sure and righteous altogether. Now, David here speaks of the law in a broad sense, not just the Ten Commandments, as we might think, um, but he means here God's entire verbal and inspired uh, instruction to his people. In David's time, this would have been probably the first five books of the Bible, the Torah or the Pentateuch. Uh, But for us here today, it's the complete revelation of God, the Old and New Testaments, what we call the Bible. He further references this in verse 8 and 9, highlighting different aspects of this instruction, there are precepts, there are testimonies, there's witness, there are commandments, and there is a fear of the Lord. He gives different attributes of this instruction it's righteous, it's clean, it's pure, it's perfect. And this revelation does essentially two things it actually engages the recipient so as to produce a change because it is alive and it is active. And also, it gives further indication about the nature of our God. So again, in verse 7, we read that this law of the Lord revives the soul. It makes wise the simple. And in verse 8, it enlightens the eyes. Now, the implication of these statements is that apart from this law, there is something about our souls that is, in fact, not alive, but needing life. There is something about us that is not wise, but foolish, Needing wisdom. And there is something about our eyes so that though they see, they don't see. And they need to be opened. They're unable to perceive the true reality of this world around us. And these pictures that God, or that David here gives us, uh, allude to a truth everywhere attested to in the Bible, that mankind is spiritually blind and spiritually dead in his sinful and rebellious nature. That we need new eyes. We need a new heart in fact, we need a new life. We need to be born again. And this only comes from our creator and covenant, Lord. Uh, one of the ancient philosophers, Plato, talked about human existence uh, in his work, The Republic. And One of the ways he talked about it was it was as if he said we lived in this cave. We lived in darkness and we were shackled. We were chained in this cave and all we could see was the wall in front of us. And yet behind us there was a light, and in front of that light there were actors, there were forms, there were puppets going about their business. And so this is the the real world, in a sense. And what we see in front of us is only the shadows of that reality, because we're bound and all we can see is what's right in front of us. And I think this is actually a remarkably helpful way to think about the way many people live our lives. There are real things we can know and experience about the world. There is truth that we can apprehend because of God's general revelation to us. But because we're chained, not in real shackles, but enslaved to our sin and our willful rejection of God, we only see half-truths or shadows of the truth that we live in. And in Plato's allegory, it was the study of math and philosophy that allowed us to be free from these chains. But David here says that it's not math, it's not philosophy or even religion as such, but it is in fact this self-revelation, the instruction of the covenant God that opens our eyes so that we can see true truth, we can see the world for the way it really is. But what exactly is it about this instruction of the Lord that unshackles us, that makes us wise, that makes us alive, that opens our eyes? And it is the revelation of the nature of God that he is not just our creator, as I've said, but also our covenant Lord. Notice back in verse 1, David says that the creation declares that there is a God. And this is a general Hebrew word for God, El. But notice in verse 7 and following, he uses a different term, a different word for God. Your English Bible will render this usually Lord in all capital letters, which indicates a Hebrew word, Yahweh. This is God's covenant name, the name by which he revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, saying to him, this is in Exodus 7, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. This special revelation of God and his his law and his word declares to God's people that he is a God who has bound himself to them. That he is a God who will deliver them from their bondage. Now, specifically in that Exodus passage, uh, this is referring to God delivering his people from real chattel slavery in Egypt. And this is not insignificant, because God does care about the physical plights of his people. But This is actually pointing to something greater. Everything... And the whole Old Testament is pointing forward to a greater exodus. An exodus in which God in the flesh, the man Jesus Christ, would deliver his people from an even greater bondage. Not a physical bondage, but a spiritual bondage, a bondage of sin. And so this covenant God is the creator God, who as the man Jesus Christ entered into his own creation. He condescended, he humbled himself. He didn't cease to be God, but added to himself humanity. And he lived a life of willful obedience. He constantly praised and loved his father, all the things that we do not do that God requires of us. And yet, although he lived this perfect life, he died a terrible death. and He offered himself up as a sacrifice for our disobedience. He took upon himself the penalty for our sin, for our rule-breaking, and he offers to his people instead of their sin his own righteousness as a free gift to all who believe, as a free gift to all who will have the eyes and the ears to hear this truth. And so we see this covenant God is a Lord, a Lord who gives himself for his people, and he invites him and he invites you here this morning in this revelation and the reading of it in all of your imperfection and all of your unloveliness to come and be washed, to come and be cleansed, to come and be made pure, to come and receive his gift of righteousness, to come and receive him as he makes you his own. So what do we do with this revelation if God has spoken to us in these different ways? How ought we, here this morning, uh, how are we to respond to that? Well, if you're not a believer, this is speaking pretty loudly to you. Because there's some sense in which you know that there is a God of the universe. There is a God who has made you, who has given you everything that you have. The very breath that you breathe is a gift from him. And yet you want nothing to do with him. Well, he offers, again, himself freely here to you this morning. And I would encourage you to think deeply about that. But there are also those of us here this morning who are already Christians, who are already believers, we have already seen this truth. And I think we need to respond in the way that David here responds. If you look at verse 10, you'll see that David responds with desire. He responds with delight. He writes that the works of his covenant Lord, the words, I'm sorry, are more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And notice here about David that he desires the Creator, not the creation. And although he clearly appreciates the goodness of the world that God has made, and it is good, make no mistake. His greatest joy, his greatest desire, the thing he knows that will satisfy him, is a growing, deepening relationship with his God as he has been revealed in his word. James writes in the New Testament that every good thing in this world is a gift from our gracious God, and we can enjoy those things rightly as tokens of God's goodness, but they cannot be an end of enjoyment in and of themselves. Uh, I'd like us to think for a minute about some of the good things that God gives us. Uh, I've used this illustration with our high school students, and it may seem a little silly, but I think there's great merit to it. Uh, God has given us food, and food is good, right? You guys like food? I think you all do. Um, food is it's delicious, right? We gather around it. We have Food is the centerpiece of family gatherings, of celebrations. Uh, it's a part of merrymaking and God didn't have to make food good. It could be really bland. It could be gross. It tastes like cardboard. It could just be something we have to do. But it's good, right? And so we're told that whatever we do, whether we eat or we drink, we can do those things to the glory of God. We can enjoy good food, right? You can enjoy a spicy chicken sandwich, and you can praise God for that because it's a token of his goodness. But if we enjoy food too much, not as a means to glorify God, but as something in and of itself to be enjoyed, we can actually become slaves to our appetites. We can become bound to that. Our God could be our belly. We could become gluttons and have all manner of disorder because of that. Or consider uh, sexual relationships, right? Sex is a great gift that God has given to his people uh, within the confines of a biblically prescribed. Marriage, monogamous, heterosexual. In fact, Paul writes that the marriage union is actually a picture of the gospel. It is actually something that indicates to us the nature of a believer's union with Christ. It indicates something to us of God's giving love for his church, for his people. It's a good gift. It's a beautiful thing. And yet, if our sexual enjoyment, our sexual appetites become an end in and of themselves, then they become disordered, they become harmful, they become destructive. And so we see the creation is beautiful. It's enjoyable. But if our deepest enjoyment is not in God himself, then ultimately we pursue things that do not satisfy us, that cannot satisfy us. And if you're here this morning and you're pursuing joy and fulfillment and something that's not Jesus Christ, you know this. You know how empty the world can be. And we can make idols, and that's what the Bible calls these things, that we pursue instead of God. We can make idols out of anything, even good things. Family, church can actually become an idol, as strange as that may sound. Sports, school, anything that we pursue for meaning and purpose and joy. C.S. Lewis writes in The Weight of Glory that we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. We want the created things rather than our creator. So in addition to desire and delight, we also see David responding here in dependence. And so you'll notice the first two sections of this psalm are these very poetic revelations, uh, descriptions of God's uh, communication to us. And yet he closes in 12 through 14 with a prayer, pleading to God to show him his secret faults, to restrain him. From presumptuous sins and to empower him for blameless living. So, even after our eyes are opened, we can see. We can see the glories of our God. We can apprehend his love for us in Jesus. Uh, We're still prone to wonder, as the hymn says. We're prone to leave this God that we love. And just as we need God to reveal himself to us so that we may know him, we need him to continue working. In us, so that we may live for Him. And God is faithful to do this. And so, if you're a believer here this morning, you can know that whatever your struggles are, whatever your sins are, whatever your faults are, all the ways you can beat yourself up for the way things went last week, God is faithful to you. God has given Himself to you, and He who began a good work in you will bring that to completion. Uh, Paul writes elsewhere that we're to work out our salvation, right? We're to participate in enjoying God, but it's his power within us that makes this possible. For the covenant God is, as David says in 14, our rock and our redeemer. He is the stable and steady foundation for every aspect of our lives. In fact, to build our lives on anything but this rock, Jesus said, is to build your life on quicksand. Unstable, it's unsteady. It will not support you when the storms of life come. But he's also our Redeemer. He's the one who rescues us from our sins. He rescues us from our failures. He rescues us from ourselves. And so I'd like to close this morning with a moderately uh, embarrassing and shameful story um, before we come to the Lord's table. Uh, I'm somewhat of a procrastinator. I don't know if anybody here can relate to that character flaw. Um, Nothing important, you know, just stuff like income taxes and studying for midterms and vehicle registration, things like that. Um, But a little while ago, I realized that the tread on two of my tires was starting to wear down. Um, It wasn't quite at those little markers yet, but it was getting there. So I knew I needed to get some new tires, all right? They weren't that worn. It wasn't that bad yet. There wasn't an immediate need I didn't perceive. Uh, So I could wait a little while to get some new tires. And so I waited. And then, of course, the worries and the cares of life came into my mind, and my need for new tires went out of my mind. Uh, And occasionally, I would remember that as I got into my car or was driving in the rain or something, hey, you need to get new tires. Uh, but it never seemed to be a convenient time to get that done. There always seemed to be something more important I had to do. Or at times there was just the foolish confidence of, yeah, it's okay. Uh, and then one day I went out to my car and I had a flat tire, right, because it had worn thin. Now, not that big of a deal, not huge. I went and got new tires. Uh, but I worry that too many people, and perhaps even some of us here this morning, think about our lives this way. And we think about God in this way. And so, just as though I knew there was a time coming where I was going to need to get new tires or I would have a flat one, uh, you know there is a time coming where you'll have to ra- reckon with your Maker. You know there is a time coming when you will stand before your Creator to give an account for your life. Or maybe some of you here this morning are believers. Again, you've seen this truth. You know that God is for you and he loves you. And he's given himself freely to you in Jesus. But you're still holding on to something. You're still holding on to some sin, some grievance, some bitterness, thinking it's not a big deal. I'll deal with it eventually. But it might be destroying you. And so the God of the covenant offers us here this morning cleansing and newness of life. He offers us a new heart. And He offers you ultimately all these things in Himself. The greatest gift is God Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And in this, there is the light. There are pleasures forevermore, as Matt preached on last week, because this is what we were created for an intimate relationship with our Creator. So, once you come to Him, once you come, are you going to wait? Wait for what? Today is the day of salvation.